What's up, amigos? Just wanted to give you an update on the Cinco de Mayo event that I'm going to be having here at my home. We have uh, some guest speakers already lined up. Let me tell you first, though, that uh, what we're going to be doing is on May 6th, which is the Friday, and then May 7th, which is the Saturday. Um, on the Friday, we're going to be having a tour of the city. I will take all of you and the guest speakers uh, to a tour of San Antonio that wouldn't be your conventional type of tour. Um, this is not a let's go check out the Alamo type of tour. This will be a tour of San Antonio or San Anto or Countdown City 210, uh, more of my style. And um, and we'll definitely uh, uh, hang out afterwards, have some drinks, some food, uh, try to make it a a unique experience that uh, you won't ever forget. And of course, then the Saturday, that will be the main event. Um, so we will have a special uh, late lunch uh, that my cousin Gabriel is preparing. He is making a cabrito that uh, feeds about, uh, I think he mentioned, he, I talked to him yesterday. He says it feeds uh, between uh, 20 and 30 people. So uh, be sure to get your tickets early by emailing me um, at lostlibertinos210 at gmail.com. But uh, that will be on Saturday. And of course, then we will have our guest speakers um, uh, having some conversations with all of us. Uh, I will have some special topics for them. And we will do that on Saturday after the lunch. And so far, uh, uh, I have a pretty cool lineup. It's a, a, a Texas style event. And right now we have uh, Buck Johnson from the Counterflow podcast um, lined up. We also have Andrew from Popular Liberty coming uh, uh, in from Houston to, uh, to the event. And then we have a new fellow Texan. Uh, that uh, is going to make the event also. And that is Matt Erickson from the King Pilled podcast. So uh, I plan to add a couple of more guests and I plan to also, oh, and I forgot. Then after all of that, and of course it's going to be recorded. I want uh, audience uh, participation. I want it to be a very freestyle flow of ideas uh, back and forward. And uh, as you recall, as you might recall, I am building a stadium in my backyard. It is going to be made uh, for playing football and having fun with family and friends, but it's also made uh, to host this type of event. And then, of course, at the end, we will be all hanging out uh, uh, with my family and friends and all of you guys. And we'll be watching the, the main event fight, the Canelo versus... Uh, uh, the, the Russian Vato, I forgot his name, Bivol, I think is his name, um, uh, that night. And we'll just uh, have a chingasos and fire type of evening. Uh, it should be all positive. Uh, you should leave this event feeling better about uh, your current state of affairs and, have, and coming off of this event with a uh, better mindset about everything. I mean, uh, uh, it's meant to be a positive event So and, for, and family friendly. So uh, be sure to uh, email me at loslibertinos210 at gmail.com uh, for more information. Uh, and like I said, it's a limited seating. 
So please uh, be sure to uh, uh, get with me early uh, before uh, tickets run out. Peace. everyone to Los Libertinos podcast. I am your host, Carlos Abelar, and this is Chingazos and Fire episode number 35. Our guest today is Steve Paxton coming live from the UK. He is the author of the book Unlearning Marx, Why the Soviet Failure Was a Triumph to Marx. Uh, he had an academic career culminating in doctoral research with, with uh, G.A. Cohen at Oxford. He is also a contributor to the Communist Manifesto, New Interpretations, and is uh, currently working on a new book that will come out soon, hopefully, called How Capitalism Ends. Uh, welcome, Steve. Hi, thanks for having me. Um, so could you please give us a background uh, into your story, um, where you were born, raised, uh, and kind of your path of uh, education and how you kind of got into uh, this line of work and, 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 and talk about how, uh, if there's any type of like stories or events in your life that led you to, um, uh, 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 you know, being able to research and, and write about, um, Karl Marx or, you know, stuff like that. So yeah, uh, the, the floor is yours to, uh, let, let my audience okay. know something about you. Yeah. Okay. So I was, I was born in England in the sixties since, uh, 1966. Um, I didn't really expect when I was growing up to be going to university. I didn't really know anyone who'd been, well, I didn't know anyone who'd been to university when I was growing up. Um, I'm not sure I even really knew what a university was. So I was kind of fairly surprised myself when I ended up there. Um, so I had, after leaving school, I did various jobs. I worked building, um, building dry stone walls. I worked in a betting shop um, in, uh, for a couple of years, probably th three or four years. Um, and at some point, I, um, I, I'd done A-levels, so I'd left school at 16, and then I went back a few years later and, and did A-levels, which is in the UK is kind of a, a step between school and university. So I did that part-time while I was working, and then um, went back to work again, and then after a while, I decided that, you know, I needed to go to uni. So, <laughs> um, so I did that, um, and by this point, I'd got my oldest uh, son, he was my son. He was born, and my daughter was born while I was at uni. So um, we we didn't have any money. <laughs> we we were just really poor all the time I was studying. Um, but it kind of you know it it was okay for a while. Finished my degree, and I started a doctorate, um, and I started doing some lecturing as well, which which helped pay a few bills. But um, I was still doing a load of work, kind of manual work and that kind of thing, to to bring some money in, and it just became. After a while, it just became kind of impossible to juggle doing a doctorate and working at the weekends and bringing up a family and never having any money. So I kind of, at the time, I, what I thought I was suspending my doctorate for a while. So I went and got a, a, a what I did was I taught myself some programming and, and got a job doing a, 
um, database programming on online. Um, the internet was kind of, there was, this was about 98, so the internet was quite a new thing then. It was kind of, um, well, I can remember telling people what, what <laughs> when people kind of say, what, what, what you're working at now, and I'd say, I'm, I'm making websites. Most people would just say, well, what's that then? <laughs> You'd say, well, you know the internet? No, don't know what that is. That's, you know, this is, this is less than 25 years ago. People didn't know, most people just didn't know what the internet was. Some people were online, but, but most people had never really encountered this thing that is now now fills all our lives all the time um so i kind of always intended to kind of finish off my doctorate part-time or to go back full-time once i'd kind of um alleviated the money pressures a bit but it never really happened um so i carried on working in various forms for another kind of 15 20 years and then when i got to a point where i was actually i could you know making enough money that i could stop working so much and have a bit of time then um and uh a publisher asked me to write something about Marx. So I kind of got my, you know, this was my opportunity really to get my, um, to, to finish my doctorate. So, so this book, this book, Unlearning Marx is really my, my thesis from my doctorate, um, uh, but slightly updated and also written for a more general audience. It's not really written, you know, a doctoral thesis is usually pretty dry and pretty heavy going, and it's written for people that are already very well versed in the field so I've tried to um, write this in a more general voice really to kind of um, get a message out I think I think it's important I think quite often when you're as, as you said earlier you, you're surprised by the title of it that the Soviet Union the failure of the Soviet Union was, was actually proved Marx right and I think we, we so often hear there's no shortage of talking heads who are willing to say as soon as you mention any kind of thing about socialism or anything like that then they just say well that's already failed. That's, you know, Marx, you mentioned Marx, well, his ideas didn't work. And so there's, they kind of sweep just in, 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 in one sentence, they've just swept the whole thing away. Um, but actually Marx's ideas, um, Marx's theory would have been quite severely damaged. His theory of history would have been quite severely damaged if the Soviet Union had actually succeeded. Um, and in the 19th century, I mean, this was an issue at the time as well with Russia in the 19th century. Russian revolutions were writing to Karl Marx in the 1880s saying, you know, hang on a minute. <laughs> According to your theory, then if we have a revolution, it's not going to work. And he wrote back saying, well, kind of. Yeah, sorry about that, guys. <laughs> it, it's not. And then he I mean, he obviously struggled with that, with that letter in, in, in his kind of uh, collected works. There's kind of four drafts of that letter that ended up in the bin and he's trying to explain and kind of kind of dance around it a bit. But in the end, he just writes quite a short note just saying, yeah, you're right. My According to my, if I'm right, if you have a revolution, it's just not going to work. But then um, the next year in 1882, um, he wrote, there was a new Russian edition of the Communist Manifesto came out and Marx wrote a new preface for it. And in that, he kind of gave Russia a bit of a get-out clause. He said in there, because the reason why he'd said he's, he had argued that a revolution couldn't work in Russia is because it was too backwards. A, rev a socialist revolution would have to come in the most advanced capitalist countries. And if it happened in Russia, which is so backward, it, it wouldn't succeed. But he gave them a bit of a get-out clause in this 1882 preface where he said, if the Russian revolution sparks revolutions elsewhere, Germany was the most likely candidate, possibly England, maybe even America. But Germany was really where people expected it to be. Um, if the Russian Revolution happens and acts as a catalyst and sparks revolutions in more advanced countries, then there's a possibility that it could succeed. 
Um, but without that, then then it would kind of be doomed to failure. And Lenin and Trotsky were aware of this, you know, in, in, in 1917, as they as they kind of launched the Bolshevik Revolution. And well, well Steve, they, I'm going to I'm going to have to interrupt you a little bit because I am not aware. Like I told you before, like I, I'm going to come at I'm going to come at you uh as a as a clean slate here because uh yeah man like uh i've never read any of this stuff so like when i was telling you off air was the, uh, before we started recording was that you know i went on to that ru class because i had you know i've you know as i've gotten older i've gotten away from trying to just give out the the talking points just like you said you know uh right. you know i would have said oh that's marxist or oh that's socialist or all just just to basically I understood it as like a collectivist idea and, you know, I would have been for like the individual or so, you know, th those kind of talking points. So, you know, I, uh, and in this podcast too, you know, I'm trying to uh, reach out to people to, to, to learn more um, uh, as I kind of go through this journey of, of, of trying to expand my, my mind and expand, uh, you know, for the audience too. Um, but, um, but in that class, uh, the RU class, um, just so I kind of get a, a, a good foundation as we kind of go through through this conversation here. Um, uh, what was your take of the class? So I, I was there for one and a half classes is four classes. I, I was there for like a, a one and a half. And then the rest of them, I had to kind of like uh, watch on my own and, and, and kind of uh, skip through it. Some um, what was your take on that? Because that's going to help me then know if you and I were kind of watching the same thing. I know that they had. They came at at it, uh, and this is a uh, Dad Russell and Ben Burgess, uh, who I've both uh, I've interviewed both of them. But they they um they were coming at it from uh, different angles. Uh, uh, what was your take on 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 that class? On the like like to kind of sum it up, so I kind of know where we both stand a little bit. Sure. Uh, well, I think if you don't I mean, mind, if you don't mind. Yeah, no, that's that's cool. I so I enjoyed the class. I mean, I do this kind of thing because I, you know I don't work in academia at the moment and I haven't done for years so I don't have people that you know normally when you're writing books on politics you're working in a politics department and you're bouncing stuff off people and sending people chapters and things and I don't really have that feedback mechanism as much as I would do if, if I was there so it's good to just get online with a load of people and talk about a, a, a lot of these issues and uh, yeah and it was good for that I enjoyed it I thought I think it's a good idea to not have an echo chamber it's a good idea to have that kind of some some people that are kind of normally in Ben's classes and some that are normally in Thaddeus classes. So there was, uh, you know, there's a good mix of people in there. Um, I I think they maybe were a bit over ambitious in how much they were expecting to cover in each lecture because we we didn't. Really, I think by the end of the four, we were we were kind of like halfway through where we should have been like halfway through the second one or something. But that's because there was so much discussion about it and so much. You know, people were interested enough to to have conversations. So I think, and I think, it's the first time they've done one in that kind of style. So maybe they'll they'll have a kind of a less ambitious timetable next time. But you know, no, I enjoyed the class and I thought it was good. And I thought it's always good. It's a really good thing to have your ideas challenged by people who aren't the people that normally challenge them. And then you can, you know, you you there's only a certain amount that you can put yourself outside your own head and challenge your own ideas. It's, it's always good. And, and if you're hanging around with a load of people that are mainly um, of the same political persuasion as you, then um, you're, you're not going to you're going to get certain criticisms. But there's a whole set of criticisms that you won't get unless you talk to people that are kind of diametrically opposed to your position. Um, 
in some ways I get, because I do various different bits of work, I'd still do a load of programming. I work on, in the summer, I work um, on uh, installations at cricket grounds. So there's a, a different set of people there. Um, and I, I don't have this kind of ac academic echo chamber. I'm not surrounded by people that think the same as me. So I think I do get, um, I get challenged in that way by with pe people with very different ideas to mine. But then also, you know, by the same token, they're not usually people that have studied politics to any length, so that we, um, we're maybe coming at it from a slightly different angle in that way. Perfect. Um, fair enough. And um, I um, um, and that way you you understand where where like my narrative of the Soviet Union or like how it uh, ended up failing was, you know, I I remember as a kid, really. One of the, I mean, I guess it would have been a propaganda movie at the time, but yeah, like I remember watching Rocky Four and, uh, you know, Drago taking steroids. And that must have been the only way that the Soviet Union guy could have beaten the rock, you know, the US guy and all that. Yeah. And I remember that as a kid and just being like, oh, okay, well, you know, that's, the, you know, they're, you know, they, they have to cheat to, uh, to beat us. And then, and then over the years, I would have heard, um, oh, you know, the, uh, you know, people were starving and millions and millions of people died. And then that, um, you know, that capitalism outspent the, the Russians because it was a superior system to, in that way. And then uh, really it was just like um, any anywhere where uh, communism or socialism is implemented, basically people starve and die. And uh, and Cuba, our neighbor, uh, just look at them. They still have uh, 1950s cars and stuff like that. So it's just the normal stuff. I mean, I don't I, I, and like I said. But to me, it, it was enough that I never really questioned it because I was like, okay, I mean, there's like videos and stuff and pictures. And it was, uh, it was, yeah. I was satisfied with that narrative. And like I said, when, uh, when I heard you speaking up in the class, you know, I reached out to you pretty fast, but I was like, Hey man, I want to talk to you. You, you, you got something uh, that's going to kind of flip me, uh, uh, you know, kind of flip, uh, what I've always uh, understood. So, so, so before we get into the, like, 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 your narrative of the of, of your book and 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 the receipts that you come in 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 and uh, and would you talk about can we can you kind of give a, a brief uh kind of history of of the man uh marks um just for anybody that doesn't know because a lot of people that might listen to my show are going to be like cousins and tios and tias yeah. that really don't know a lot of that so can we get a little bit into marks and then we can get into why his uh ideas are uh, resonated and then, and then we could do it in the context of the the, the Soviet uh, experience. Sure. So he um, uh, he was born in Germany in I can't remember the exact year, but but early <laughs> early nineteenth century. And um, he so he was a kind of a lower middle class family. His his uh, dad was Jewish, but had converted to Christianity. I think um, he. Um, I mean, I, I'm I'm not the person to give you the, the full blown bio on Marx. Sure, it's his ideas that I'm really interested in rather than his his kind of lifetime. But but he yeah, so he went to university, studied philosophy at university. Um, he wrote a lot about Hegel. He was uh, who was very influential German idealist philosopher at the time. Um, a lot of people say that Marx stood Hegel on his head. Um, some people argue that Marx kind of took Hegel's methodology, uh, not his methodology really, but the form of his arguments and, and gave it new content. Um, there, is, there is quite a debate among Marxist scholars about how much Hegel influenced Marx. Um, it's not, 
I mean, I have to, I did a podcast a while ago about that very subject actually, but it's also, it's not that I'm, I don't care to be honest, how much, I mean, I think, I think it, we've got to be careful not to think Hegel's influence is so great that we start misreading Marx, but I don't, you know, I'm, I, I when I, it sounds a bit flippant to say, I don't care. That's not my thing that I'm interested in. It, it's fine. If other people are interested in that, that's their thing, but I'm kind of interested in what Marx had to say rather than how he came to, to think that way. Um, but he, yeah, so he started as a, as a philosopher. He worked as an editor, of a, as a journalist, and then an editor of um, various German newspapers. He worked for um, some American newspapers um, in the 1860s. Um, he wrote, he, he was in the, or he was a member of the Communist League um, in the 1840s. And I think it was they, they uh, commissioned him, Marx and Engels, to write the Communist Manifesto. Um, so there were a series of revolutions going on in Russia in 1848, and um, they kind of needed to get something out quick, get their, their manifesto out to, to sort of position themselves in, a, in all this turmoil. Um, and it's, it's well, certainly his most, well, I, I, that, and, that and Capital are the Marxist's most famous works. But I think the Communist Manifesto, that, you know, there's some good stuff in it, but also it was a bit of a rush job. I think it was written mostly by Engels and then uh, Mark, and then largely rewritten by Marx. Um, but it was kind of done to order in a bit of a rush, and it's a bit of a kind of a, a political pamphlet. It's a call to arms, really. And it's quite, in, in places, it's quite, the emphasis is quite different to his more sort of, his, partly his later work, but also his more kind of theoretical more considered work and his work on the theory of history. So there are some tensions between the things he said in the manifesto and the things he said in more um, theoretical works. Um, and I tend to find the more theoretical stuff more plausible, really, and, and, um, and more valuable than the stuff in the manifesto. Um, and then as he got older, he, got, he was exiled from Germany, had to go and live in London, um, and uh, was partly supported by Engels. Um, and he yeah, traipsed down to the British Library in London most days and churned out capital. He wrote loads of, he just wrote an insane amount of stuff. Um, the Marx Engels collected works, if you ever find it in a library, it's, it's about 60 volumes. There's, there's maybe 5 million words there or something. So, um, and it's all, and, and also he did things like when he was, when Russian revolutionists started writing to him and asking him, you know, what about his their situation in terms of his theory? He went and learned Russian so that he could go and read loads of Russian history in its original language and then then give them a better reply. So he was, you know, he was a busy, he was a busy guy. And I think what, one of the things that I've tried to bring out is that most people who come to Marx tend to come to the, they come through the, the prism of Lenin and Trotsky because they've, they, they've, because of the Russian Revolution and the Soviet Union, that's kind of the big thing. And so they, they come to Marx through that prism of Lenin and Trotsky. And one, one thing it means that we see it kind of through their eyes and they were caught up in these huge world-changing events. So what I've tried to do is step back from that and kind of ignore what Lenin and Trotsky had to say and concentrate actually on what Marx said, not how they interpreted it. And one of the reasons for that is that they really focused on his kind of political stuff. So Marx did write a lot of a lot of um, political stuff, especially in his journalism. But he also, uh, Capital is mainly an economics book, um, but there's loads of history in there as well. So he was kind of an, he was an economist, a historian, a philosopher, a, a journalist and a political agitator. And 
you can, and, I, and he wrote over a decade. So obviously in there, there's going to be some contradictions. People change their mind. People, you know, different contexts bring different ideas to the fore. People, um, you know, different events that happen in people's lives change their view on things. So there's a load of stuff there. And it's it's not, it, you know, I don't think anyone would claim that Marx is 100% kind of internally consistent. There's a lot of different strands you can drag out from Marx and a lot of different things you can, you can um look at what Marx said and you can come out with a load of different conclusions and that's okay you know that's fine and I think one of the reasons why I don't tend to I don't tend to refer to myself as a Marxist is that I think as soon as you do that then it it pushes you towards defending everything he said or everything he did and I'm not really interested in in that I'm happy to accept that he had some flaws that some of the stuff he wrote was rubbish but I think there's still some stuff in there that's really good and really useful for us and I we shouldn't look at the stuff that isn't so good and then dismiss everything we can still get some value out of the stuff that he wrote that um particularly his theory of history for me so, um so let's talk about that understand the world we're in yeah so let's talk about the 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 the, the history part so is, is that what he what uh the his his historical materialist view is, That's is right, that what it yeah. is okay so yeah um I had to look that up because you had brought it up in the class like lightly you know because obviously it wasn't your class so every time you would kind of bring up some stuff you know I was like oh okay and man I had never even knew about these these series of stages and different like and how you know I consider myself an entrepreneur uh you know how you know family business uh I own rental properties uh I just bought some new property that I plan to develop and build little houses and then rent them. You know, I mean, uh, I don't know. Uh, even when I, uh, so like, I'm not, like I said, uh, I, I'm not a good reader. I'm not, I'm not that kind of guy, but I can see around and I could just see capital everywhere. What stuff costs, what, what, what is producing? Oh, uh, if I see a building there, I'm like, Oh, what, what are they paying for rent? What are they, man? I, you know, all of that just goes through my head, like nothing, man. I like that, that those numbers and all that, just, I mean, that, that that's easy for me. It just comes real easy to me. But, um, I had never even thought about the idea that there was stages and all that. So can you kind of get into that? Cause, uh, I can't, sure. I really want to get into this. This, this is cool stuff and it's fascinating. Okay. So, so Mark's, um, Whereas a lot of historians, certainly at the time, but even even now as well, a lot of historians will categorise societies from the past or even the present as according to their political organisations. So they'll talk about republics or monarchies, democracies, dictatorships, that kind of thing. And, And obviously that's an important way of looking at things, but it's not the only way of looking at things. And Marx tends to look at the economic structures of a society. So he talks more about feudalism, sort of slavery in the ancient world in Rome and and Greece. Um, Lots of people um, have commented that Marx is kind of possibly because of the, you know, the the available, the access to sources that were available in his time, you know, Marx is is kind of wrong about some of the stuff that he thought about those societies, but there was a lot around that he could, he could learn about uh, medieval feudalism. And when he really, his, he has this idea that society progresses through. So, so at some point we, we have a, a, a feudal system and, but now we have capitalism in his time. How, how, did, how did this happen? How did we get from feudalism to capitalism? That's what he's trying to understand. And what he argues is that basically the, the growth of productive power, the growth of productive capacity 
means that we're, we're kind of we're, we're not on a straight line it's not always going up it's not always going at the same speed sometimes it might go backwards but there, there is a tendency that technology develops our productive our, our, our productive capacity over time does increase and um, as it increases then different types of society suit increasing it more at any particular level so there's a there's a, a level of development that feudalism is really good for moving us up towards the amount of um, product productivity we need before capitalism can happen capitalism is really good at moving up uh, us up through the to the level that we need before socialism can happen so he's seeing this as um there are, there are material preconditions for each of these stages you can't have capitalism until you can have things like a fluid labor force and and you can't have a capitalism thrives off industrialization and urbanization so if you look at something like um say england in um, 1500 75 percent of the population worked on the land and that means that each person is producing enough food for themselves and a third of another person and that's just simply not you're not producing enough food to have big towns or any kind of industrialization you can't have a huge industrial workforce because you're not producing you need everybody working on the land just to make enough food for for them and the few you know this this extra this very small non-agricultural population so but over time agriculture invention you know technological developments um, people learn about crop rotation they learn about sheep folding they learn about um adding uh, nutrients to the soil and they learn and you know and they start to make make progress in, in in producing sufficient surplus that you can have more people um not working on the land and that frees those people up to go and work in industry um and this marks has a particular you know it's a, there's a fairly kind of a um detailed way that he describes that process happening but but the, the gist of it is that the technological development um it moves you up through through it increases during during the feudal era but then you get to a point where the feudal social arrangements the relations of production who owns what those um those relations just prevent people from from any further technological development there's too much custom and there's tradition and there's like the old ways of doing things and they just kind of stifle further development the feudal system was stifling the the kind of emergence of the factory system and some people, some of the feudal landowners start seeing these opportunities to make some money. So maybe if they kick their peasants off the land and put sheep there instead, and the price of wool has gone up then they can make more money. So some of the sort of more forward looking guys um, start doing that kind of thing. And but others are still attached more to the kind of the traditional ways. And, th you know, there are lots of reasons why some people might act in one way and some people might, might act in another so some is just down to people's personalities some people are more risk averse than others some people are more adventurous than others but there's also things like do, does your land actually is, is is the land that you own suited to um to modern more modern um, farming methods or would it be a waste of time kind of modernizing that um one of the big things was how close people were the, their proximity in the feudal hierarchy to the crown because if they were very close to the crown, they don't. Those guys don't want anything to change. They're doing really well out of the current system. They're not. They're not advocating for any changes. They're, they're probably not necessarily viewing a small increase in agricultural production as some as a threat to their position. But actually, that's what it turns into because those small increases mount up, and the small changes that people make, where they start evicting tenants and enclosing the land, that kind of gradually increases. And over a couple of hundred years, you get this situation where the, the 
more progressive landlords um, are joined by these kind of new a new kind of merchant class who are really kind of out for making a load of money as well and they've been stifled by the feudal system there were all kinds of restrictions on what you could buy and what you could sell and who you could sell it to and where you could have a market and these guys kind of circumvented that by holding illegal markets outside of the borough towns so you get these kind of these two things you get these forward-looking landowners and you get this new merchant class developing and they start getting quite a bit of power they're getting power but it's economic power they've just got the money They've got the they've got the clout, but they don't have any political power, and that that then they start butting up against the established order, and then you get in the in the 1640s you get a civil war in England, and it's really between we we always call it you know we're school in England we're always taught it's the English civil war, but um, in the 1930s a Marxist historian called Christopher Hill said hang on that's no, that's England's revolution that's the English revolution you're looking at there that's the capitalist revolution whereby the rising bourgeoisie, the capitalist class, overthrow the, um, the, the feudal the, the feudal barons and the old order. And it kind of, you know, it's not a kind of a complete break. They, they win the civil war, they cut the king's head off, Oliver Cromwell takes over for a bit, tries to put his son in charge, which is really not what people were kind of expecting to happen because this looks like starting a new dynasty. And in the end, they, 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 they restored the monarchy and then, uh, which was 1660, and then, by 1688 they kind of they felt that the monarchy was going in the in the wrong direction and trying to revert to its old ways under, under James and so they kind of invited William of Orange to come in who's a you know staunchly Protestant came in from from Holland took over the English throne but in a very much reduced role a very constitutional so so it's we, we ended up then with a constitutional monarchy so the capitalist class who are represented by parliament had suddenly had now got kind of a foothold in political power instead of the king as you know Charles I in 1628 just say right I don't you I, I'm not having a parliament anymore go away and he ruled without a parliament for 11 years by the end of the um, 17th century then you have a constitutional constitutional monarchy and parliament has a lot more power and that suits the rising capitalist class a lot more because they're um that's their that's that's their power base really that, that their economic power they've now got some political power to go with it so in in, a, in some ways there's a lot of things to kind of a couple of things you can take from that is one is that that actual process of revolution kind of took a few hundred years there was the there was the flashpoint at the end that we call the civil war or that christopher hill called the english revolution but that was really most of it was most of it was done by then most of it had already happened the revolution was this long process where where a, a different kind of arrangement a different type of ownership a different set of things that can be owned a different way of looking at property rights all that kind of thing came in um, over this long period and then the, the flashpoint was when the the, the, pack, the, the class that was sort of had benefited from all this the bourgeoisie the capitalist class yep. um, managed to just grab the political power you know and, and yep. that was the that completed the revolution you said that uh, it, it was done over hundreds of years, and, and it sounds like uh, technology was the pace setter. Um, where was the law? Uh, what was the how was the law? Uh, what was the like the, the law always seems to me like it's a reflection of like the, the community. And did like did the I don't even know, man, like did the Magna Carta and all that stuff? Was that a pace setter within that with, 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 like uh, of like giving more rights to 
like the like people in that way where the 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 king you know relinquished some of his sovereignty to the people a little bit was that a pace setter within that or that that didn't really play too much into it you know because mm. uh or 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 you know i'm just asking because uh yeah mm. i do like the idea of pace setters uh because even now in my in my life where i don't try to pay attention to too much stuff i do like to pay attention to the people that i think set pace and mm. and, and that's just mostly for to be efficient about how i spend my mental bandwidth on whatever i want to get into so yeah. so uh was the law uh where was the law in, in that so I, and, I, and i only interrupted you because you had said uh property rights or sure. you know so so that to me is part of of, of the law you know of how do they protect property rights where, where was the law in, in this uh transition over time so um so for, well firstly for the magna carta so that was 1215 i think um and that that had no that Nothing. doesn't mention ordinary people that's kind of between the king and the barons okay but it but yes you're right it is a bit of a um it's the king acknowledging that he doesn't get to do exactly what he wants and he's, he he needs to take account of what the barons want as well but it but it's certainly not kind of ordinary it's, it doesn't have any effect on your average peasant wandering around the streets um but it's like when, once a king says i'm not all there you know i'm not the super sovereign then anybody can always look up and be like, hey, you know, I'll take a shot, you know, yeah, you, yeah. You, you know, so then it starts kind of that can takes hundreds of, you know, even, yeah. you know, but anyway, you know, that's why I brought it and up. That did that happen. Way. And there were civil wars in England, you know, after, after, okay. I mean, there had been before, but there were after as well, the Wars of the Roses, they're, they're kind of battles over who's going to succeed because quite often it's not, it's not that clear. There's, you know, there's, um, that, there are various pretenders to the throne and then there's a war to basically decide in their view in th in theory is is the war is to it will will show them which one god has chosen because they 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 believe that they they uh, or they claim to believe that they're ruling through the divine right of kings and that's i mean as a as a named doctrine that that's a bit later than the wars of the roses i think but but that's certainly that's the that's really um that's their attitude is is that is that um they're king because god says they should be king and if god thought they shouldn't be king then somebody else would be king so there's that and they and you, you have you know that's part of the thing with feudalism is that you have these beliefs like the, the the divine right of kings and the great chain of being all justifying this you know horrendously unequal system that is there it's all justified through these kind of religious doctrines um whereas uh, the, the, the capitalist revolution, what they bring, they they kind of, although they're the you know the material um, changes of what what brings that about, um, they then have to bring into place. So they have people like John Locke justifying private property, that kind of thing. So the capitalism brings with it a new ideology and a new set of um, uh, ideas that legitimise the, the capitalist system. Um, so and the law, I think. So so it's I think with Marx. He kind of sometimes talks about things where he, when he says somebody owns something, what he means is that they um, have a have a right to use it. Doesn't necessarily own it. Other times he's more, you know, he's obviously very aware of the fact in in pre-capitalist Europe, um, the law wasn't like it is now. So it was more arbitrary. You were much more likely to be at the whim. I mean, we're already, you know, that if the judge got out of bed on a the wrong side on a particular day then you might get a harsher sentence but but then it was much more arbitrary and that was that was a thing that that held capitalism back because 
capitalism needs investment and for to invest in things you need to know what your return is going to be and you need to know that after you've spent all the money someone's not not going to come along and say well actually you can't do that i've just decided you're not allowed to do that and and i'm having that now or or whatever um or start charging people to use this this thing that you've built you need certainty that your investment is going to be returned. And so capitalism needs a really codified set of laws. So that's one of the things that, that the capitalist revolutions brought with them was um, a much more focused legal system and a much less arbitrary, you know, based on, on statute law, case law, rather than on the arbitrary decisions of kind of local magistrates and things. Um, you know, obviously that was a process that took time to come in for a long time under capitalism. Ordinary people still had to put up with the, the local magistrate and whether he's having a good day or not but but th but kind of bigger projects and 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 people you know higher up in society have benefited from this kind of certainty of, of law and investment um, which which made you know uh it kind of smoothed the path for capitalist development and think all kinds of things like railways and canals and building factories all benefited from that kind of legal you know um, codifying of the legal system um, and much more predictive predictability of that don't forget to visit our sponsor, palomaverdescbd.com. It is a family-run business that my wife and I run out of our home. Uh, it, it is we've been we've had it for a little over two years, and the last year we have been strictly an online business. We've had our struggles, uh, but we've uh, persevered, and we have also recently added some new products uh, to our line. Uh, of course, you know that we have all the edibles, uh, the tinctures, uh, all the salves and uh, 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 creams, sports creams, and um, uh, and some of the pet products. But uh, we've uh, added this time some, uh, you know, bath bombs, 25 milligrams each. There's four in this bottle. Uh, you know, be sure to take care of your lady or um, you could take care of yourself if you're that kind of vato. You know, that's cool, too. And also some uh, massage oil, once again, to take care of your lady or yourself. If you're that kind of vato, that's OK, too. <laughs> and uh, when we first started the business, if any of you guys are aware, uh, it was meant to help our fathers out. And at that time, the the stigma behind cannabis uh, products was still around here in our culture. Uh, our, our fathers weren't really up to it, but you know, we kind of told them that uh, there was no psychoactive effects or any THC in the product. And then they have been uh, users of it and they've gotten a lot of benefits from it. But we've also listened to our uh, uh, customers and many of them have mentioned that they'd like us to bring in a full spectrum product because there are, there are some uh, extra benefits sometimes through the entourage effect if you have some of the THC in it. So uh, we have a new uh, uh, full spectrum uh, tincture, uh, 2250 milligram uh, tincture bottle. Uh, so you can be sure to check that out if you're trying to get some of that, um, plus all the other products that we have. So visit palomaverdescbd.com use the promo code chingasos at checkout c h i n g a s o s for 20% off anything that you purchase free shipping 
So be sure to check it out. And I appreciate, uh, Vanessa and I appreciate any of your support. Get your products, take care of uh, your body and mind, and peace. So the stage after capitalism um, and, and why the Soviet uh, uh, failure happened was because they got ahead of the game some, right, basically? Yes. Yeah, so, yeah. I mean, they tried to. Yeah. So Marx, Marx argues that, you know, in, in the same way that there's a there's an amount of technologies, a level of technological development that you need before you can have before you can get into capitalism. There's also a level of technology, technological development that you need before you can have socialism. So Marx argues that um, capitalism is uh, a lot of people don't realize that, you know, a lot of people think Marx has a uh, you know, has a huge downer on capitalism and can't see anything good about it. And it's all terrible and everything else. But he he does see some positives there. So firstly, it's it's an improvement on feudalism in terms of people's personal freedom and, and uh, a, a million other things. But also it's real benefit is the really big thing about capitalism for Marx is its ability to develop productive capacity. More, much more rapidly and to a far greater extent than any other system. So you need cap capitalism to uh, create the abundance that is required before you can have socialism. If you, you know, we, historically we live, we live in scarcity, there isn't enough stuff to go around. And so people are fighting over it. Um, what Marx says is if you try to socialize, if you try to have socialism um, before, while, while there is still scarcity, what are you doing? All you're doing is sharing out not enough. So then everybody's got not enough and that just pisses everybody off. Nobody's happy and they're going to they're going to um, rail against that that regime and they're going to bring the regime down because you've just pissed everybody off and, and, and made everybody poor. So what he argues is that you need capitalism to produce this huge amount of abundance and this this, this to drive technological development on so that we can produce so much stuff that we've got enough stuff that we can then start sharing out and that, you know, then you can have socialism. Um, when I how say sharing that, it out, I how, mean kind of distributing more, more reasonably. You know? How does that work? Uh, so this is where I would be like, so how, that meaning that uh, you want um, enough, uh, I don't know, like residual or fertile ground of uh, productive capacity where then the state or like through the democratic process, they uh, someone says like there's extra whatever and we can share. I mean, um, like that's it seems like we just like like so. So the way that you were able to explain the transition from uh, feudalism to uh, capitalism, uh, how does the next transition work because uh, so, uh, I'm definitely going to be uh, paying attention to that there. So how okay. does, how does that work? <laughs> okay. Um, well, I think, I think the lessons that are really, so a lot, a lot of people, you know, like the Bolsheviks in 1917 in Russia thought it worked by seizing the means of production um, through a violent kind of overthrow of the previous rate regime. Um, you, yeah, it's kind of a moot point whether or not that, that was part of the reason why the Soviet Union failed is because, because it came about by a sudden revolution. But really Marx's idea as to why it failed is that they just, yeah, they were too soon. Like you said, they got ahead of themselves. There wasn't enough um, uh, productive capacity. And so, and so it was a, Marx calls 
that kind of a revolution, a premature revolution, and he argues that it will just it will just fail because uh, unless it can spark revolutions in the more advanced countries, which obviously it didn't. Um, so, in in terms of the next revolution, I think there yeah, the lesson is that it probably won't happen suddenly. It will probably it, it's it it is probably already going on actually in the way that from kind of fifteen hundred people started experimenting with more you know, putting their operations on a more capitalist footing, started trying to, trying to do new things, new ways of looking at things. Um, people are doing that already. So, you know, in England we had the, uh, or in the UK, we had the NHS in, from 1945, um, totally free healthcare for it, cradle to the grave for everybody. Um, that's now being rolled back um, because we didn't put in place the right, uh, the right defences. But, it, you know, it was a hugely popular thing while it was there. Um, and it still is hugely popular, so much so that the people that are getting rid of it have to lie about the fact they're getting rid of it because they get lynched if, if it, people realise what they're doing. Um, but you've got other things, you know, I mean, there are small things like in Germany and Sweden, every company above a certain size has to have workers sitting on the board of the board of directors. Um, you've got places um, experimenting with things like universal basic income and you've got places experimenting with four day week. Um, you've got, um, you know, we've all, all most modern Western countries have got um, a, a reasonable welfare system where we, with some sort of arrangement for unemployment and that kind of thing. So there are there are things pushing in those directions. You know, we have state education. This education isn't completely privatised. So um, there are kind of experiments. And what we, you know, we'll, we'll see really as we go on which, which uh, experience, I don't think the UK or the US are probably going to be the place where the, the decisive changes happen. I think we're too, um, we, we, were, we were kind of at the forefront of capitalism. And because yeah, of that's that, what I was going to ask, I was going to say, well, you know, if the, these were the most capitalistic place, then would it, would they be the first in line to bring in the socialist trends, you know, the, the, but you're saying that it's, it won't be, it won't be there. Um, well, I think, I think they were the most, they were kind of like, um, at the forefront of cap capitalism, but for a long time. But I think they're kind of um, they've got this kind of slightly backward-looking mentality in the UK and the US. This, you know, certainly in the UK, there's this sort of former glory, the past, looking back at empire and everything like that. And 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 you know, look at America with Trump, which make America great again. It's looking back. It's saying we were great. Let's let's be like that again. But that time's gone. And being great in the next twenty or thirty years is going going to be about um, making your population happier and more content and, you know, more sophisticated and healthier and all that kind of thing. And that doesn't, that doesn't come through more stuff. Um, there's, there's some really good research by uh, Richard Wilkinson um, about where he looks at these standard kind of uh, indicators of it, there is a kind of a happiness index somewhere, but I think he uses a different set. So there's all kind of criteria like um, prison population, divorce levels, life expectancy, teenage pregnancies, number of people who've gone to university, people who say they're happy with their job, or loads of kind, you know, um, social care arrangements, that kind of thing. Loads of loads of things that you kind of are fairly easy to say, yeah, I'd want more of that, or I'd want less of that in in in, in my life. And what he finds is there's no correlation between how good a, a country fares on those scales and how rich it is among, among modern, you know, the sort of kind of liberal capitalist nations. 
Western Europe, America, Japan, South Korea, that kind of thing. But he, but what he does find is there's a really striking correlation between the level of inequality and how well countries do on all those measures about how, how happy their population is and how well their population are. And the, the, the more equal countries, countries with, with lower inequality indexes have fare much better on all those measures of kind of social success. And the countries with more inequality, which is, includes the UK and the US, do less well on, on all those um, markers. So, and, and partly what that argument is, is, is part of the, it's contributing to this idea that we've got enough stuff now. You know, our, our, lives, our lives are not going to be improved by having more stuff. We already, we have, we have seven to different estimates, seven, between seven and nine million people die of hunger every year, but we throw away 28% of the food we produce. So, you know, the problems we have are not problems that are problems that are getting going to be solved by having more food. That's not going to stop those people starving to death. We're throwing away food. The problem is we have an economic system that doesn't let us give that food to those people. And so we need to start having a different focus. We need a focus that is that is not on more. You know, we, and, and you can see, you know, I mean, is your life going to be improved by having more, you know, another car, more bling? Or is your life going to be improved by having you know, more time to spend with your family and better healthcare and, you know, living in a safer neighbourhood and all those things. And lots of things, you know, there are plenty of people in, in um, capitalist countries that, that don't have enough. And so there does need to be some redistribution, but it doesn't need to come from producing more. There's already enough. There's, you know, how many yachts has Jeff Bezos got? Do we, there are people sending themselves into space in a kind of billionaire pissing contest. What, <laughs> we... We've got enough is the, is the thing. So we need to work out ways that we can harness that productive capacity that capitalism has given us and try to, um, uh, try and try to use it in a, in a more efficient and, and, a more, and, a, and a more positive way. Yeah, so then um, technology would be the driver in that. And, but... Uh, Man, I, I I'm hearing you, but I guess the the inner uh, entrepreneur kind of business and yeah. uh, business guy in me is saying like, well, I kind of do want some stuff, some extra stuff, <laughs> <laughs> you know. Like uh, what one of the my main drive uh, drivers in in life, and my wife knows this because I told her from the beginning was that I was like, you know what, I just want enough money to make enough money so I can go to the biggest boxing matches around the world and to the biggest football matches around the world, like to Europe, like. I was like, man, like, I want to get to a point where I can go to the Champions League final every year in Europe and we'll just do a family trip. Okay, well, that takes a lot of money. That takes a lot of little yeah. houses I got to build and a lot of uh, <laughs> stuff I got to do. And uh, I don't know. I mean, uh, would I, you know, I, I mean, I'm happy watching them on TV. You know, I am, you yeah. know, you know, can I just do it, like, do it like that? That's what I'm doing now. And it's pretty happy, you know, but, you know, I'd like to be there in person, uh, you know, but uh yeah, that's kind of a, a, a hard one. And maybe that's um, kind of like how you had described uh, about the, the the people in agriculture, the ones that were forward thinking or, or were thinking about making some extra money and all that. And it, and it was more about the character of the person. Um, so in, 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 in this transition, a character like me that might want to do that, what, what role do they play? I mean, Cause uh, man, I'm so, gonna be I'm gonna be honest real quick, man. Like, uh, I flirted with communism like in my early 20s. So I came into politics through the Bill Marshall. So 
So I used to, you know, we got HBO, you know, we have enough money to have cable. We got HBO. I started watching this guy and I was like, hey, this guy's making a lot of sense and a lot of stuff. And somehow I got, I, I started getting, I started reading a little communist stuff. And I told my dad, you know, my dad's a guy from Mexico and just worked his whole life. And he goes in Spanish, he goes, no, no, esos papinches huevones. So basically he's like, that's just for lazy people. That, right. that, you know, that's just for lazy people. What about when, what, what you, you want to start? We already have lazy people in our own family. You want to take care of the, the lazy people in other people's family. And real quick, that was it. That's all I needed. I was like, no, right. I don't. And that was it. That was uh, it was like a, like a week where I was kind of looking into it. And, and that was it. That, that, that's all he had to tell me just to be like, so there is some of that in it. But, you know, I'm not against um, like what you're saying in, 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 in the way it sounds, but I don't know if how it, in practice it comes about. But, you know, like you said, there's some you there, there's stages and maybe it does come maybe not in my lifetime and maybe it comes in the future somehow. And it'll be nice if it could all happen that way. But I don't know, man, there's a, I don't know. So I don't know, you know, where, what kind of role does uh, someone like an ambitious entrepreneur kind of person have where, you know, I mean, I'm not saying I'm greedy, you know, I mean, I took care of, we took care of all of our workers and there's probably none of our workers here that would say, Oh, these are bad bosses or none of that. You know, we take care, you know, they've been with us for 20 plus years since I was a kid, you know, they, a lot of these guys are old guys that have been with us for a long time. And, you know, I, you know, I mean, what, what role does that kind of person have that, you know, does, you know, like, like someone like me that kind of, you know, plays the game in that way. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, I think you're, you're kind of more like the, the feudal guy that was, that was kind of clinging onto the feudal past. You're trying to cling onto the capitalist system that, that is on its way out. Um, and to be fair, part of the reason why you're doing that is that you've got, so you own some means of production. So, um, the, the one of the, the ways that uh, Marx defines capitalism is it's an economic structure where most people are proletarians, and, and that means they own no means of production, um, but they do own their own labor power. And that differentiates them from feudal workers because um, feudal workers did have some kind of that ownership didn't mean the same thing then, but they had some kind of occupancy rights to the to the land that where they where they lived. They had some kind of rights to use the common resources so they could graze a sheep on the common or they could collect firewood from the spinney or something like that. So, so they had some kind of control and some kind of um, ownership is probably too strong a word, but sometimes kind of possession of some means of production. But they didn't have full control or possession of their own labor power. They couldn't just go and work where they liked. They were, you know, they had to apply to leave the village or to go and work somewhere else. They had to ask the Lord of the Lord of the Manor for permission, sometimes even just to, to temporarily go and work outside of the, mm. the, the manor. So um, one of the that's one of the defining things about capitalism is that we end up with people who don't own any means that they're free because they they are free to sell their labor power to anyone they like. But they're unfree because they have to sell their labor power to someone, otherwise they're going to starve to death. They can't just till their own land and because they don't own anything. So they can't, they, they don't own any land, they don't own any means of production. So it's kind of a, a in a way, it's a double-edged sword. And so, so the, this is, and then on the other hand, apart from the proletarians who don't own any means of production, you have the bourgeoisie who own all the means of production and the proletarians have to go and sell their labor to, to a member of the bourgeoisie. So your position is, so you're saying that some of these workers have been with you since you were a kid. So I'm guessing this is your dad's business. So 
you've been fortunate in that you've inherited, you've grown up in a family that owns some means of production. And it might not be enough that you don't have to go to work, but it's certainly enough that other people are going to work are increasing your, your pot of cash. You know, your ability to go to the Champions League final depends on a load of people going and doing some work. They don't have a choice to say, well, actually, I'm going to employ a load of people and, and I'm going to go to the Champions League final. Their only option is to go and work for someone else. And so they're never going to be in that. You're never going to earn enough money in a job to be able to save up so that you have the kind of lifestyle where you fly to Europe every year. But as a business owner that's employing lots of people, then maybe you, you can. But the, the question is, how do you become a business owner? Now, some someone... So sometimes that happens because people work really hard. Sometimes it happens because people get lucky or they have a particular talent. Um, these, ta- you know, and it's not a it's not a talent that is, that is these aren't kind of um, universe a talent that is universally useful, but a talent that fits the society that you happen to live in at the time. You know, you could be a great basketball player or something. Well, that's great. Now it would have done you no good at all in medieval France. You'd have been a peasant like everybody else. So these, you know, it depends what your skills are and 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 how they match the the situation you're in. But but um, the vast majority of stuff of, of the means of production are owned by people that didn't get it by working for it. Um, they because most of us go to work every day and we get paid and we have this money and it basically we have an income and basically it, we spend it on living. It goes on rent and food and and, and whatever. But we've worked for our money. And because most people have worked for their money, there's an assumption that all the money there is has been worked for. And whoever's, whoever's got whatever money they've got has got it because they've worked for it. But, but in, in fact, lots of people, you know, lots of people inherited huge estates. You know, lots of people in England, England is still owned largely. The, the land in England is still largely owned by the same people that owned it 200 years ago. Um, and there is, you know, there are numerous instances of that. And it's, it might be. I mean, maybe you're, you know, I don't know your situation. I'm not having a go at you here, by the way. I'm just. Saying, oh, no, no. I like this. No, no, no. I'm, I'm uh, no, no, man. No, no. It's cool. It might be that your dad worked really hard. and, and got Yes. But, so, so, but it might be that his dad worked really hard or his dad worked really hard. Or it might be that your great, 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 great granddad just swindled somebody out of some money. We, you know, we don't know. I don't know. Um, and, and you probably don't know either, you know, that far back. And I think there's this there's this idea that. Nozick talks about it a lot. Um, I don't know if you know Robert Nozick, who is kind of the, the, the philosopher behind sort of the Thatcher and Reagan era. Oh, okay. Um, Right wing li- libertarian philosopher. And he talks about um, property and, you know, he, he's right. He's, he's saying that he talks about um, justice in, 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 in property. Is If you want to know if the, the distribution of, of resources in a society is just, then you can you should be able to look at any item that is owned by somebody and say how did they get that did they did they did they was was it a just transaction by which it came into their possession but you you can't just look at that you've got to look at the history of it because if if you steal a car and I buy it off you it's still not really my car is it I haven't got that by just means um, so I, I I need to know before before I can say I, I I am the rightful owner of the car I bought from you I need to know that you were the rightful owner of it. And you need to know that the previous guy was the rightful owner of it. And if you take most of the the wealth of the world, actually, there are huge bits of it that we either we know for sure there was some dodgy transaction in it for part of the British Empire or the American 
you know, the, the, the land rush, um, or we just don't know where it came from. But, you know, how, how did somebody end up with the stuff they've got that they've inherited through 20 generations? We just don't know. But probably there was something pretty dodgy there at some yeah. point. Is there, um, um, is there one value? Oh, it's okay. I don't want to let me, let me say it. So in, in, in what you were saying, every time that you said hard work, uh, you know, my brain lit up, you know, because uh, I remember uh, by myself, basically it was after a bad breakup. So it's usually after, you know, usually these things happen after, uh, it's usually after a, a bad breakup, but I had extra time on my hands. And at that time I was building a home, my first, you know, building a home, like a spec home to sell. But I also said to myself, I was like, you know what? I'm going to go get a regular job. I've never had one. I've always worked for the family business and all that. So mm -hmm. I went to a car wash. No one knew me. If, if I told them, hey, yeah, I'm a, I'm a home builder, uh, they'd probably be like, why are you, why are you here? So, so, mm -hmm. so I went there and I, it was just the weekends and all, and I just put my head down and worked hard. I worked hard and people that have been there, you know, what I understood was people that were, had been there for months. It just took me two weekends of Saturday and Sunday work to basically like, there's all these levels of like, anyway, but, but you want to get to where you're making tips out there at the end, drying up the cars. You know, it didn't have, it didn't take me too long, like a couple weekends that I was able to pass up all these people that are working there every day, right. you know, just because I just worked hard. Uh, and I guess the boss person would say, Hey, this guy, you know, he's working hard. So he gets rewarded for working hard. So in, in, in this, in the socialist system or all that, like it, like, like so that was kind of the question. It was kind of like, what happens to the people that just like to work hard? They also like to get rewarded or in a way, or are they going to be incentivized to not work hard? Because, you know, what's the point if we're all going to get this, you know, I'm trying to ask a little bit like, like, yeah. and, and I did it, man. I, I and then after I kind of got there, I remember like, okay, well, you know, I, I just, uh, somehow and I, it was this somehow it was me you start talking to the and i kind of let out that i was a a, a builder to some people that i kind of befriended and then they kind of cut my tips the boss guy cut my hours and and then i kind of mm -hmm. got it like oh they don't want me there because they're like oh you know why are you here kind of thing you know and i got it and i just took you know it didn't you know but i just wanted to do a test run like is it just hard work that get and just at least in that run it did feel like that it did feel like if you just work harder than the next person next to you, you can advance your position in the, in that structure or in that system. So I don't know. Uh, I guess that's the question kind of like uh, what, what happens to the person that wants to work hard in, 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 in the new, as they transition into like the socialist system. Um, well, I think, you know, we can, we can see with that, that pe people, you know, people do work hard in lots of things and it's not always um, for financial reward. So there's, you know, um, in the UK, unfortunately, nurses are not very well paid, but there's lots of them working really hard all the time in the NHS. Um, there are there are loads of jobs uh, um, where people are not very well paid. The, the, your car wash experience, there is a limit there, isn't it? You're net, you're, even when you're at the top and you're getting all the tips, you're not making as much money as the guy who just owns the car wash and doesn't go to work. No. You know, his only work is collecting the money at the end of the day, isn't it? And he's still making the bulk of it. So, so you're still not gonna, going to... Um, make that kind of money um, just just by hard work there's a limit to how much hard work can get you um, people you know I've, I've got a quote in the in the next book that's coming out I've got a quote from a Australian heiress who's a you know she's inherited billions and her tip for people who aren't billionaires is just just be one of the people that works hard 
you know, well, lots of people work hard and they don't they don't become a billionaire. And most people who work hard, work hard don't really get very well rewarded for that under capitalism. Um, and yet the people still work hard. You know, we, the, the incentive re- isn't really there for for people to work hard um, because lots of people who work hard don't really get much reward. Um, I think, you know, under socialism, it depends. You know, if you ask 10 socialists, you'll get 15 different versions of socialism. But, you know, for me, I think I think socialism does require, you know, you, it requires people to work hard. But I think people are happier to work hard if they think their money is going to some kind of greater good than if it's just going in the pocket of some millionaire um, or shareholders or whatever. And I think, you know, socialism does come with a requirement. There is a there is a requirement in a socialist society that we look after the people that can't look after themselves, the, the old and the sick and the ill and people that maybe are studying children, um, people who are carers. We've maybe got a family member that, they, that is ill and they need to be a carer for them. So not everyone can be making money. And there is a so therefore there's a requirement that those that can work not only work enough to provide for themselves but to provide these other services as well as you know we I mean we do this already to some extent we, we, we all work and some of our money goes off to pay for schools and libraries and roads and bridges and all that kind of stuff so you know it's not it's not an alien idea but the idea under socialism is that all of your all of the money that you kind of earn but don't get would go to kind of better causes than to buying Jeff Bezos another yacht yeah or uh or for me to go to the Champions League. League. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Fair enough. Uh, Yeah, can you um, uh, uh, hear that we're getting close to the end here? Uh, Can you you kind of give us a a sneak uh, peek into the new project that you got going on? Because, uh, you know, that one, again, I definitely want to know how uh, capitalism ends because, uh, you know, I do find myself in in that class of, of... so yeah so you know uh so how how, how's that uh, going on and um you know uh, what do you got on that end okay so i'll do that can i just actually before we go there can i just finish what i was going to say about the soviet union we got a oh yeah so yeah I, yes 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 um, so i mean just in a couple of sentences uh, sorry so, sorry so, so the, the 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 scene is really so so point one is that is that marx says that, that if you don't have uh, the right conditions, then capital, then the socialist revolution can't succeed. And those conditions weren't there in, in the Soviet Union. And that, that's why it, it, he, was, he correctly predicted that it, wouldn't, it would not be a successful revolution. And 75 years later, it collapsed. And therefore, he was, he was proved right about that. And it's all, oh, I've got one here. Look, there you go. It's all in there. Get the plug in. Um, but but the, the that's what I'm saying there is fairly standard Marx kind of stuff. But but the point the, the thing that's new that I'm saying in the book is not only that, but also if you look at the course of Soviet history, um, even though we kind of get distracted because we look at the, the Soviets themselves, the Soviet regime claimed to be trying to build socialism. So we try we we tend to look at did they? But we look at them on those terms: did they build socialism or not? And we judge them as successful or, or, or otherwise on that criteria. But I think um, it, in the same, the same as with the development of capitalism in England, nobody was trying to develop capitalism. No People were doing the things that made sense to them at the time. And the upshot of a load of different combined things was the emergence of capitalism. And what I'm arguing is that that 
um, the Soviet period and the, and the period just before it from the 1860s constitute Russia's capitalist revolution. That was Russia's bourgeois revolution. So in a, in a really, really kind of basic way, you had Russia was definitely a feudal society in the 1860s before the serfs were freed, emancipated, and, it was, and it's now definitely capitalist. So there has been a transformation from a feudal society to a capitalist society. Um, so in a way, you, you know, whatever happened there, you can say, well, that was Russia's bourgeois revolution. The question is, does that then fit in with the way Marx described the emergence of capitalism out of feudalism in England? And actually, there are loads of striking similarities. All the processes, Marx has a kind of a checklist of things that must happen before you can have capitalism. And none of those things were in place when the Bolshevik Revolution happened in 1917. But the Soviets basically put them all in place, not because they were trying to put in place the conditions that would enable capitalism to arrive, but because mainly what they were, they were the Soviet Union hardly ever had the opportunity to do things it wanted to do. As soon as, it, as soon as the revolution had finished, there was a civil war that went on for ages. By the time that finished, they were devastated by the effects of World War One and the civil war. So they had to kind of retreat. They had, well, they had a bit of, they had to think of the new economic policy, which was a bit of a flirtation with capitalism. But then when, when Lenin died and Stalin took over, he got rid of that and brought in the five-year plans. Collectivization in Russia ticks a load of Marx's boxes and is exactly the same process, in, it plays exactly the same role as um, eviction and enclosure in England. Kick the peasants off the land, get rid of their ideas if they're, they're any right to, to own or possess or occupy it. Consolidate the, the, the farms into the, you know, the small and scattered farms into big units that are capable of modernization. Create this landless workforce who don't own anything, who can go and work in factories. These, these, that's, that's what's that was the upshot. It wasn't the intention, but that was the upshot of Stalin's collectivization program. And, you know, Russia kind of, it was quite good. This, this idea about different economic structures being, being suited to different levels of development. The Soviet system was pretty good at industrializing from almost nothing to kind of 1950s level. That kind of invest a load of money in heavy industry, get a load of manpower in there, build stuff, pig iron, steel output, that kind of thing. It was pretty good at that. What it wasn't any good at was kind of the kind of keeping up with America in terms of the consumer society in the post-war period. Russians could see what what was going on in America. You know, despite attempts to stop them from seeing it, people people knew what was going on, and they knew that what they'd got wasn't as good, and that caused some kind of discontent. And along with other things that Russia had the Soviet Union had suppressed, like kind of religion and nationalism and that kind of thing, there was a lot of kind of resentment building up. And the the the, the inefficiency of the system really is what, um, and put, coupled with this this kind of internal resentment is really what brought it down in the end. So and then, but then the as as the Soviet Union was collapsing, people like Putin. Abramovich, these guys were kind of waiting in the wings, positioning themselves to take over in this kind of capitalist oligarchs. So th that's my argument in the in the book. That is that that's the new bit in the, in the book is is that argument that um, you can see the Soviet experiment really as Russia's capitalist revolution. Okay, even uh, though no one intended it to be that. Um, uh, if, if if the way that. Uh... The, the those revolutionary leaders were, were sending letters or asking Marx about, hey, uh, this is going to fail, right? Because uh, uh, like the way that Marx explained it, what, uh, what would Marx say about the China experiment? Like, because uh, 
they're now super capitalists, but they weren't before. And are, are they doing it? Well, I, th- right I think you way? could have that. I think you could take a similar view to that. I'm not an expert on China, so I, I wouldn't okay. want to um, say anything too too um, confidently. But I think, yeah, I mean, China was not um, fit for capitalism when the you know in the when the Chinese Revolution happened, and it kind of is now. And it's weird. It's not you know uh, it, it's not normal capitalism. It's not capitalism as we know it in the West. But it's kind of because it interacts so much with the West, then it's kind of feeding off that capitalist system. And it gets the same it gets the same kind of um, uh, the feedback mechanism of, look, I've Mm. invented this thing and it's really popular. It'll sell well and make loads of money. That capitalist feedback mechanism does work in in the Chinese system, even though the internal markets might be restricted. They're selling into the Western markets, really, aren't they? So. I think, yeah, I mean, I think you could argue that, that, that you know, China, um, I don't know where it's going. I think there's a lot of, lot of different, different ideas about where it's going. But I think you could argue that China has kind of hit a, a, a rich seam of capitalism. Okay. And um, yeah, man, and sorry for skipping over that. I know I, know I was just trying to be kind of res- uh, respectful of the, yeah. of the no, time. No, but no. Um, so, uh, yeah, man, uh, can you, uh, Steve, get, kind of give us a sneak peek into the, the, the sure. new project that you got going on? Because uh, uh, the title definitely uh, would, uh, you know, spark interest in yeah. me for sure. So it's called, yeah, so it's called How, Capital- How Capitalism Ends. And it's um, the subtitle is History, Ideology and Progress. So the first, and it's divided into those three sections, history, ideology, and progress. So the first section really covers quite a bit of the ground we've covered today about how historical change happens, how progress happens, how societies move from feudalism into capitalism, and what we can learn from that about how we might move on into into something else, possibly socialism. And it also kind of looks at where we are now and are we seeing signs of that? And, it, you know, have a look at things like the coming kind of um, artificial intelligence. We're moving into a, an era of that. So we've always had automation and capitalism is very bad at dealing with um, automation in, to, in terms of how workers end, you know, the workers at end of it. So um, when, when, uh, when, technological developments happen under capitalism the tendency is basically that you know a new machine comes in that does the work in half the time and what that means is that half the people get made unemployed um, and the other half are still overworked and then but then they have to pay more tax to keep the unemployed people unemployed whereas mm. you know yeah good point you know you know what i just sorry i i saw that as a kid you know what when we, we had to construct you know, you know I, I remember as a kid i would get sent after high school when we needed laborers to the little labor market and I would have to go pick them up, you know, and I'd have to go yell out the window, Hey, this much. Uh, and they would say, what, what's the work? And I would have to say, you know, pico y pala, right. Pick and shovel, pick, pick and shovel. Yeah. But, and then once we bought a trencher, we, I didn't have to do that anymore. Cause one guy could do yeah. the work of like five or six guys in one, you know, it was, it was, it was, yeah. uh, you know, it was capital equipment. But uh, I didn't think about the other end. They're like, hey, well, now you have to pay more in taxes to take care of all the people that are now. Yeah, un- yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I had not thought of it that way. But yeah, yeah, go ahead. Sorry, man. Yeah. I mean, there's another way that that could be done, isn't it? That, you know, that that machine could mean that every day, because you're still making the same amount of money, 
you still get getting the same amount of work done. So maybe everyone only has to go to work one day instead of the five people digging holes with a pick and shovel every day. You get one guy driving a digger and four guys spending the day with their grandchildren or going fishing <laughs> or going to the Champions League final or something. You know, <laughs> but you can't. That is never going to happen under capitalism because you, as the capitalist, have paid for the machine and you want to get the best return from it. Capitalism is not equipped to 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 deal with that in a way that is kind of. Um, that, that works for the workers. It works very well for the capitalist. And I think with AI, what we're going to see is a huge, it, it's not just going to be more people put out of work by that, but it's going to be a different kind. It's going to be a much broader range of people. It, you know, the, the, there's a guy that's done a study and he's actually used AI to read all the job adverts in the papers or online, I guess now, and all the patents that are going through the patent offices for the machines that will do those jobs. And he's yeah. saying, yeah, it's, it's, it's university graduates are going to be the ones that are going to be really, they're going to be the hardest hit by, um, by the, the new wave of AI, because those graduate jobs, that's just where the AI, that's just what the AI is targeting, all the new patents that are coming out of, for those kind of graduate jobs. So, and that's, going to, that's kind of a new thing. So there's maybe people with um, uh, more connections and more clout and more and a louder voice are going to find themselves made unemployed by, by this wave of, technological progress and maybe that will make a difference um mm. I, you know and, and that's a, a question i talk about in the book but i think you know it's th this situation is that that we have under capitalism with technology is that the people whose lives are kind of blighted by drudgery and toil have learned to fear the invention of any machine that will mean they they, they have to do less drudgery and toil because it, all that means is unemployment and no money coming in you know we should all be looking at a machine that does, if there's a task that's really unpleasant and no one wants to do it, and somebody invents a machine to do it, we should all be happy about that. <laughs> but actually, the person that's least happy about that is the guy that used to do the unpleasant task all day long, because now he's got no money. And, you know, this is a bizarre way to carry on with things. We, you know, we, we need, a, a, we've got enough stuff. We don't need to keep having more stuff. We just need to sort ourselves out so that we, we work better and we work Kind of more for, for people's benefit and i think the that and things like how much food we throw away even though people are starving to death and many other examples in in the book about you know the kind of it looks like we're we're getting to the point where capitalism isn't making sense anymore loads of the financialization of the markets loads of loads of money is now made just by buying and selling things that don't exist currencies and futures and things like that that's not that's not helping anybody that's not that's not producing more stuff that's not working hard there's no virtue in that behavior but there is a massive incentive to engage in it because that's how people who, who are really rich get really rich so so there's that and there's also things like um capitalists like to talk about the ability of capitalism to um inspire inventions and to you know to, to, to people will do better research if they if they have this promise of all this money at the end of it because they've invented something great but when you look at people for example um it, not an invention, but Crick and Watson who discovered DNA. You know, they got a kind of, you know, they got a pat on the back, probably got a book deal. They, they might have got a promotion, but they didn't really get rich out of doing that. Massive advance for all of humanity, their discovery. And, you know, they were kind of modestly rewarded for it. On the other hand, you've got Professor Rubik, who invents a little plastic, brightly coloured cube, becomes a multi-multi-millionaire. For making this because he's made a little toy you know these i'm not i'm just saying you know you can't you can't say 
hang on a minute, there are going to be some problems with um, in, incentivizing people under socialism when we look at the incentives under capitalism and they're completely skewed. They're not, you know, we're not we're not talking about replacing some kind of perfect system. We're talking about replacing something that's basically quite terrible for many, many people and in lots of different ways. So, you know, we don't need to have all the answers about how socialism is going to kind of perfectly incentivize people to do exactly the right amount of work. We just need to be better than the stuff we've got going on at the moment. And, and that's a pretty low bar in, in some way. So then the next section of the book, ideology. So the, the point of that section is that even if we can see these limitations of capitalism and there's kind of material problems with capitalism, many people would argue that it's the only free, the only fair system, it's the only system that delivers freedom and justice for everybody. And, um, so, and so we, you know, even if it's got these problems, we must keep it because it's, that, you know, uh, it's, the, it's, it's the system that delivers freedom. And there, so there I argue against that quite a lot. Um, and I, I don't think that the capitalist conception of freedom is a, is a kind of a true and accurate one. And, you know, I go through a load of stuff from people like Robert Nozick and John Locke. Um, I talk about that. I talk about um, the concept of the left right spectrum in politics and why that's been a bit of a problem for us. Uh, I talk about equality, um, the idea that capitalism requires a certain type of equality and a certain set of freedoms and a certain set of, set of rights. But I think what we need is, is, is more freedom and more equality and more rights and more justice. So, and I, and I, so I kind of present an argument as to why socialism might, might be able to, to um, provide those. And then the last, and there's a big part on um, private property and freedom there. And then the last part is called progress. And that's the bit where I kind of have some suggestions about how we might move forward. Things like, uh, I mean, I talk a little bit about modern monetary theory. I don't think that's the answer to anything, but I think it's a really interesting set of observations about how the capitalist economy works. Um, and then I talk about things like the idea of a jobs guarantee. Um, I, I, I come out against universal basic income, but I do like the idea of, of targeted basic incomes. That's not the same as means tested basic incomes, but um, uh, and yeah, and I kind of look at things like employment, education, health and um, democracy and how we can improve all of those things and, and, and move on how we need to move. We can't just keep reforming capitalism and trying to make it better. We actually need, need to move in beyond capitalism into a new paradigm and a new way of thinking about property and ownership and, and that kind of thing. So that's the, that's the next one and that should be out later this year. Perfect. Uh, thank you, uh, Steve, for uh, coming on Los Libertinos. I hope uh, you feel I respected your time. And uh, when the new book comes out, uh, I'd love to have you back on if uh, that was if that's OK with you. Sure. Uh, can you um, plug in where people can um, uh, reach you at and, 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 and where you, they can uh, uh, get your uh, current work? Uh, yeah. So the, the, the current one, which is this one, is um, that's available everywhere. I normally send people uh, in the UK. There's a bookshop called hive.co.uk uh, in America. There's uh, bookshop bookstores.org i think it's called but both of those support um local independent booksellers so every time you buy buy one you nominate a, a bookshop in your town and they get some money um so you know it's kind of better to buy it from there than from amazon but but it's available you know barnes and noble all the all the usual kind of places online um and yeah people can yeah get, grab me on twitter uh, i think my twitter name is steve underscore underscore paxton so Perfect. Uh, thank you, Steve, and um, and we'll talk soon, hopefully. 
Peace. Cool. Right. Enjoy it. Thanks. Right. <laughs>